This episode of The Candid Frame is supported by Fujifilm's new integration with Frame.io Camera to Cloud. A new integration between Fujifilm and Frame.io allows transferring images or video to the web directly from your Fujifilm camera using C2C technology. Find out more by visiting fujifilm-x.com and clicking Camera to Cloud. We as photographers judge our work by evaluating the single image. We assess it immediately on our camera's LCD or later on the computer screen. We discern whether it's good or bad based on lighting and composition, color and sharpness, moment and gesture. If we believe that we've produced something exceptional, we may print it, add it to a portfolio, or simply share it on our social networks. However, the impact and meaning of that image can be redefined, even transformed, when it's juxtaposed with another photograph. Called a diptych, it's an artwork that brings together two separate pieces, in this case photographs, to create a singular art piece. The beauty and the meaning of that diptych is derived by the relationship between the two photographs. They may share similarities of color, shape or gesture, or the connective tissue may be something that's more nuanced, taking more time to understand and discern. When done well, a diptych does more than just put two pretty pictures together. It challenges the viewer to delve deeper into what they're seeing and feeling when they look upon the photographs. Nina Welch-Kling leverages the power of diptychs in her new book, Duologues. The book showcases beautiful, surprising, and sometimes funny juxtapositions from her years of photographs on the street. It's a wonderful body of work that has inspired me to rethink how I assess and judge my own photographs and my relationships to them. And I hope it does the same for you. This is Ibarion X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. You, you got on my radar. Uh, I actually didn't want to start off with a thank you because I got turned on to you, I think, about a year, year and a half ago, probably. Uh, I forget exactly how. But I, I saw what you were doing with the, with the duotones. Duologues. Duologues, excuse me. And I had, I've always done something similar when I'm teaching a class about uh, sequencing. Edit, you know, sequencing images for a portfolio or something. But for whatever reason, I had not really sort of thought about it in terms of taking uh, images of my own, especially over a grand period of time, and just putting them together. And I, and I started doing that, and it was like rediscovering my photographs for the first time. And I... I found pairings of images that I had never would have considered together that were um, taken years apart in different locations. And it was like the, it was like feeling the feeling I had when I made the pictures in the first place, there was such an eruption of like joy and of discovery. Um, that was great fun. And I really have uh, enjoyed doing, doing it since I've gotten, a whole pool of images 
And the plan is to start going through them and start seeing what relationships sort of exist there. Uh, because, and likely how you discovered, is that there's sort of, uh, there's a sort of a limit as to what you can do with the singular image, with the one image. But when you bring it into relationship with another photograph, there's a completely different dynamic that that arises. And talk to me about discovering that for yourself in your in your own work. I think um it was a it was very similar. I think it, it was a class project. I still take classes and we were looking at work and we you know the project was to make a diptych and it was like wow th- th- this opens up such an interesting and different world to my work and just worked with so many of my images and um and i agree it, it, you know there's the joy of taking a photograph and i always say when i make these this collection of what could become a diptych it has to kind of stand on its own but sometimes on its own it's not a photo that might make any sense in any other sequence and then when you pair it the kind of storytelling that happens takes on a life on its own for myself and also for the people viewing it and i think this is why people really responded well to to the project because it especially i think in street photography where it is is hard to sequence it into a project yeah because it, it there is not a theme there is not an underlying project there is not there is no underlying concept really i mean it's you going out and responding to the world around you but when you when i started combining them initially i i had i realized that there were so many images that had the same subject so i kind of called them the prototypes and then so it was people in hats smoking i mean this kind of repetitiveness was like okay how many of these should i take and then I took these individual photos where I felt like this was a strong image. I really like this image out of this prototype, and I paired it with another image. <clears throat> and then I went back into um, when you look at research historically of diptychs. I mean, they started as a religious uh, as a religious um, artifact that you could travel with. But then later it developed into this relationship between the two, and there's the formal approach, and then there is the the psychological approach. So in my book, it became, you don't want to be repetitive. You don't want to give it away immediately. You don't want it to, for somebody to look at it and say, oh, I got it. That's initially okay. You know, that one-liner is fine, but if you repeat it more and more, people are like, okay, I got it. So you kind of look for it and you're not looking at the photos. So the minute people are like, okay, they're put next to each other for a reason, but I'm not getting it. The viewer is kind of challenged to try to understand what I was trying to do. And that's most likely not what they're starting to see. So I find that a very interesting approach in how to show your work to an audience or how you know you show it to a viewer and how they respond to it. And so I still now I just I mean I put it aside for a little bit and I worked on a different project and I've been working for a different project for the last 2 years. But just this week I love sitting down and pairing photos. 
it becomes this wonderful, I don't know if you as a kid or if you still do, like play memory, you know, where there's two different pieces on a table and you kind of try to find the match. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this puzzle memory game that I'm playing with myself. And, and I'm sure you've noticed sometimes it's like, oh, wow, this is a great combination. And you kind of feel this the feeling you're talking about when for the first time you do combine them or when you shoot it. And then it's like, oh, my God, these two are, it just takes on another life. And sometimes they're like, eh. You know, so you put them aside, you go back to them, you pin them, you print them, you pin them up. And so I've been loving doing this. Yeah. You've kind of answered one of the questions that I had in in, in terms of sort of the rhythm to an entire series of them, right? Because if you start, because looking through the images, um, there were images where it was obvious that the linkage was something graphic, a line and a shape that was mirrored in both of the photographs or, or color. But then there are other ones where it was less obvious as to what it was. And I realized the importance of being able to have that, especially in, in the span of a, of a book. Because as you said, people will start figuring out the pattern and they'll just be preoccupied with the pattern rather than with, with the imagery. Um, that being said, when you're, when you're sort of designing a book in, in this case... You have to be even more concerned about rhythm, pacing, repetition, to create sort of a beginning, middle, and an end. How did you do that? You, you mentioned well, the book design was interesting because then it went back and forth, and you know you've taught classes about sequencing. So then, for book, you know the the question was: Should there be empty pages in between? Should there be an mm-hmm. individual photo to kind of stop you? And that went back and forth. So it, the, the pairs were they were set, bef- you know, from the beginning on. Now it came down to how do you present this, and like how do you present it on a page? Do you? And I decided, and we went. My publisher it went back and forth, that I kept it the same because it's me walking through the city and kind of exploring. But I didn't feel there was one pair more important than another. But the minute you make one smaller or bigger in, in a kind of rhythm, it's like, why is that different? And I couldn't come up with a conceptual or any reason to why that pair should get a special place. I, ca- I mean, I have a degree in architecture. And so in, in all of your conceptual ideas, they're always, no matter how conceptual they were, there had to be some kind of reason mm-hmm. that made sense within your project. I could not come up with a reason why there would be a change of size if there's enough change between the pairs. So, for example, there's this one pair where it's the guy um, eating a hot dog. Yeah. Which is kind of a comic relief for me Mm -hmm. so this is kind of like so like this is kind of in the middle it's like okay you know it's a different reaction to when you look at something and you don't get it and then my brother who's a he's actually a finance professor at UCLA he's like 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 I don't get this (laughs) and I said you know why don't you show it to your kids and your kids who will be you know who are very who don't have this preconceived notion that there's something to get they will come up with their own story they will start telling you a story about this without having to know what the connection is. They just create it. 
so this kind of creative process that we and actually I I was listening to Bob Patterson's um and you kind of you guys were touching upon this the idea of creativity and how children and how we lose it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was actually a study done by Sir Kenneth Robinson. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He's a psychiatrist that psychologist that just passed away, but he did this study with kids. He gave school kids um, this uh, what is it a paperclip, young kids, and they came up with hundred different ways of bending it. They, he went back and gave it to eighteen-year-old kids, and they came up with one idea: with putting it together, putting clipping the papers together. And so somehow in our education, we lose this freedom and creative input that um, is given. So what was my point? I don't even know what was your question. It's like I'm getting totally off a tangent. <laughs> like we were, we were we were talking about you know the idea of. The, the relationships of the, yeah. the, the images and, yeah, and the, the sequencing, sequencing right. yeah. so I think it's very important because if you give it away too quickly or all of them and sometimes it's a secondary thing like most of my photos have subtly a secondary like some secondary punctum for better word of it that are important in my photos because otherwise they're very simple and minimalistic. But there's always a secondary and hopefully a third point of interest that the viewer can find. But when you take those minor details and you put them together, people kind of have to find them. And by finding them, they spend more time with the photos, hopefully. Yeah. One of the interesting things that I I found with my doing it with my own images and looking at, at your images is one again it was somewhat very obvious in terms of what the relationship was and the and some, some others there were it was less so it was less clear and i found that when that happened in my images when i would pair the images i i didn't have an immediate understanding of why they were connected but i felt that they were and 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 I think a, a big part of that, and I really would love to hear you um, discuss this, is that even though I didn't understand it, I knew that it worked. But that involves a level level of trust in your own intuition, right? So talk to me about sort of trusting that part that even though you may not completely grasp what it is that connects these two images, s- trusting the feeling. I think... That's sometimes very difficult because I think to trust our own work to begin with is is hard. Like we, you know, like how do we judge what's a good photo for ourselves? And then how do you trust the combination of the two photos? But I think the formal aspect, as you said, is easy because you you kind of find the 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 you know the shape and it repeats itself. The emotional part, you have to trust and go back a couple of times and look at it a couple of times. And after a week, maybe you, if you still feel after six months that that's a strong connection and you still like it, I think it makes it easier. I also have to say that I'm in a class and I have a mentor and I will show it to him and we will discuss it and he will have a strong reaction. And I trust him 100%. And by trusting him and by having a mentor, it makes it a lot easier to um, 
to 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 believe in in your own pairs. So getting feedback, I think, is very important. You mentioned earlier pinning the photographs. Do you print them? Yes. Print these pairs and put them on the wall and live with them for a while. Yes. And so some of the pairs in the book are now maybe three, four years old. And the newest pair in the book is maybe a, not even, it's like six months old. Well, now it's it's almost a year. But it was it was a recent pair. And I felt a little insecure about putting it in because I hadn't really tested it over time. So some of the pairs have been printed and looked at for a long time. The one that are more recent, I think, is a little harder because I think it's really important for you to print it and look at it multiple times or over time. I think the series really benefits uh, it benefits from your eye. You described as a street photographer. I don't know if you sort of lay claim to that name or not. I I have I have mixed feelings about you know defining it as such, especially because I feel like street photography is is the idea of it has been ghettoized to a point where it gets it's problematic for me. Let's just say that. But one of the things that I do like about your 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 images overall is that is your you know that you know that little machine that little machine where you put in a quarter and it has like a claw and it goes into the machine and you try to pick something up that's the way I think about your photography right it's like this you got this assortment of stuff that's going on all this sort of chaos and then you just your camera in this case goes in and picks up this little thing and you know deposits deposits it and it's always sort of a, a remarkable thing that in the midst of all this chaos, you find these little elements and these gestures that, yes, they do happen in the street, but they're not what I think a lot of people think about when they think about street photography of a picture of a stranger walking down the street. And it's, I think it's a wonderful sensibility and a gift that you bring to, to, to the genre because I think it's it's all all that... I think the street is is this color palette from which to work with. And any person who's a photographer can use that color palette in any way that they want. It's not just rigidly defined. I know that you came to street photography later, you know, after your initial discovery of photography, but talk to me about not just discovering that you love the street, but talk to me about what you loved about it and laying claim to your own way of being able to see and make photographs. I think initially the fact that it was easily accessible and my kids were still in school, I was still, uh, number one job was being mother. And so the in-between times, it was easy for me to take the camera and just walk out of my apartment in New York and always finding something so I think that made it finding something and finding something interesting and exciting so I didn't have to create the world around me I felt that the world around me had so much to offer and I think maybe because I wasn't born in in the United States and my curiosity and interest in seeing things that I had never seen before or that interested me or caught my eyes, maybe I zoned into 
diff- a different point of view just because of that. But I, I think I share this with a lot of photographers who who didn't grow up here. But then I also felt that maybe my, my and I'm sure it is my my architectural background, the way I organize my frame is is quite structured and quite organized. I mean, we all organize our frames, but if you look at my photos, I think you can definitely see an architectural point of view. And then I think that that has has part has par- part of how I see the world. But I also like the element of surprise. So because I felt I was very rigid in my approach and how I see and how it's structured, I loved that the element of surprise that I had no control over really made my photos. And so this combination of the two made me fall in love with it. So there was this, this element of surprise and then there was the, 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 the parts where the light or the, the, the dark and light, the shadows that I could seek out and I had some control over. But then what happened out on the street was, was just coincidence. I, I agree to a certain to a certain degree with that because i think i think it coincidence coincidence is at play but i also think that there's a certain mindset because i'm like you i my frame is often very defined um that i can put together all those elements and make a really graphic interesting composition and like you, I'm all, always looking for sort of that element of surprise and serendipity and unexpected juxtaposition that brings the image sort of to life. The thing that I have and sort of continue to struggle with is putting myself in a mindset where that can come to me. Because if, if, if my mindset is not right, that ser- that chance, that luck, whatever you want to call it, it, it's not recognized. And so the camera never comes up or the shutter release button is not pressed at the, at the moment of, of that sort of discovery. And I think that I, and like a lot of other photographers struggle with that idea of surrendering control, especially when that control has allowed us to create effective photographs in the past. So how do you sort of let go and allow that aspect of the experience that you that you can't have your hand on to play out itself and for you to make the photograph so it's i think it's a very interesting point that we hold on to the things that worked in the past mm-hmm. and where we felt that that was a six or is a successful photograph for whatever reasons and we analyze it and we go out but then what often happens when you try a you can't recreate it I mean, if you shoot out on the street, you can never recreate the exact moment. And I think that's part of the beauty of it. But what does happen is that often when I come home, I make discoveries about the photograph that I actually didn't see at the time of shooting. And my eye or you know my, my, my subconsciousness somehow grabbed on to something that I consciously didn't see. And so these discoveries then become something that become part of your photographic repertoire, for for lack of better words. So you start creating this library of these discoveries. And I think all of these discoveries, 
the discoveries start to build a language that you can fall back on. You might not always use it, but it's something else you're going to look for. And I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but mm-hmm. the people always say, oh, you know, how do you find these moments? And I said, first of all, you need to go out and photograph. Like if you're home and not out shooting, you're not going to make these discoveries. And for example, my, the series I'm working on right now, it was a discovery that I made because I went out and then I saw something I'm like, hmm, let me recreate this. And I'm very interested in this detail and how can I, you know, plant this little seed and, and move forward with it. So I feel in street photography, so there's one photograph in the book where there is a man holding his hand to not have the sun in his eyes At that moment, I was interested in the gesture, and I was interested in the light, and I was interested in in the interesting person that came off the subway or at at that spot. The wonderful surprise that happened and the discovery was that he was holding a $1 bill. Mm -hmm. You know, this, when I go home, makes my heart pound. Because there was something else that I didn't see. And I'm truly fascinated when I go home and, and find... These, the, the otherness in, in the photographs. And then I often look to in, in the duologues to combine that otherness with something. So your eye, instead of what I saw first, goes to the, to the otherness that I didn't see before. And I think that what makes me want to go out and, and always find new discoveries. I have an image very similar to that. I was in downtown Los Angeles, and there were some street preachers on a street corner. And I saw one of them holding a Bible, and I just he his hands are very, very thick fingers, and you know he, he did a lot of manual labor, so his his hand just told a story, and the Bible's skin was well worn as well. And I went in, and I made a very tight photograph of of it, and. I had the image in there for a while, and I, at some point I showed it to someone, and then someone pointed out that there was a $20 bill sticking out of the Bible, like a bookmark. And when I shot it, and immediately when I saw it in Photoshop or Lightroom or whatever, I didn't see it. And it took someone else pointing it out, and I was like, <gasps> Right, it makes you gasp. And then, so then, when you combine that piece with another photograph. So in my book, I'm combining it with a person from behind and there's a zipper and it's it's this. So the, the association is very different from what the original photo was. But, you know, the story of whatever, whoever you are will be part of, of what you're creating in your head now. And so I'm really fascinated by the fact that and you mentioned this earlier that you can take a photo from eight years ago and you can combine it with something today and somehow you can make it work. So by putting them together, you, you're compressing time or you're creating a before and an after or you're creating a different moment in terms of time. And I also find that very fascinating that these still photographs can become part of a temporal moment or a, a different temporal moment just by the way you create it. I mean, people will not know that, but you do. Yeah. 
you know, you're you're a New York photographer, and there's there's a reason why that city is often ripe for this genre of photography. But as seemingly chaotic as the city is, there's sort of uh, you can expect a certain degree of stimuli, a certain degree of quality of stimuli every time you step out, sort of into the into the street that you can become accustomed to as as a photographer. Do you find that when you go out and photograph elsewhere that you struggle to get into that same mindset because the environment is completely different? Do you find that going into a different city or a different community becomes a distraction because it's not what you're used to? So I come from a very small town in Germany and I go, my mom still lives there, and I go back quite often. So it is a very familiar town to me, and it's a familiar place to me. But it's a town of 50,000 people. It is very quiet. It, it, it's the, the really, it is the opposite of New York City. And I do enjoy going out and photographing people. It's a, It's a little different because... You're much more exposed, so people will see you with the camera. It's also in Germany, it's illegal to take photos of people without asking them. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm <laughs> I'm stepping on on a few um, issues here, mm-hmm. but people see me clearly, and I will find a spot, and I have some photos in a town. But it's nice to visit a place and have a fresh set of eyes in the town and I didn't grow up photographing there so now I feel like I'm rediscovering it and there there are parts about it and in my book there's also a lot of pictures that do not have people and I like to pair them often with people because I think it becomes a more conceptual photograph I think it's hard to pair a person with a person Um, it's also I like to shift scale so most of the photographs are there's a scale shift happening there's a smaller and a a bigger part that I'm looking at but so to your answer I think I enjoy applying the same eye in a in a in a town where I've not been and I I I think it, it works what doesn't work is is if I travel with my family and because I don't have the same concentration. I feel like I'm not in my zone. So I think what's more important than where you are is that you find your zone, that you find your place where you can concentrate of what you're looking for. And when I'm in that zone, I don't hear the noise at Times Square. I don't hear the quietness. I don't hear people yelling. I'm just there to find what, whatever I'm looking for. But I don't even know what I'm looking for. As you mentioned, you, you grew up in Germany in Schweinfurt? Schweinfurt, yes. Schweinfurt. Small town. What do you think, when you think about yourself as that young person growing up there, what were the things that sort of, that you feel were sparked and or, or, or nurtured there that allows you to see the world as you do now? There was a lot of time spent growing up sitting in a sidewalk cafe, people watching, which 
there really wasn't much to do, but we would spend a lot of time sitting, having a cup of coffee, drinking some water and sitting on the marketplace and just letting the world go by. So the observing of people, whether I knew it at the, I mean, clearly I didn't know that, but the, your observational skills, I think they don't just come, you know, overnight. I think we kind of have to school our eye to look at things, take the time to look at things. I think today with the iPhones, with the cell phones, I find that I'm not looking at things as much around me and I lose the, and when I'm out with my camera, I'm, I go back into really looking. So I think that's one thing in, in the small town that, that prepared me or gave me some clue that that was was going to happen. The other thing is that I was always creative. So my mom had a clothing store and up in the attic was a seamstress. And she at the time she was a full time seamstress. And this is where I spent a lot of my young um, years, three, four, five years old, I would play with the buttons and I would create these creations out of the leftover fabrics and stitching and gluing and made these puppets. And then, so there was always a love for these details. So buttons, I love buttons. And in my photographs, there's a lot of buttons where, where the line of the buttons play an important role. And there was also my mom in the store. The other place I like to be was her windows. So the the window decoration, and at the time there was it was nothing like a Bergdorf window where it was a construction. It was nylon threads where you would hang these sweaters and pile clothing. But I would spend hours in there, and I loved the the kind of creating these environments. And so I think all of that had a big influence on me, and the fact that I really wasn't good at math and. <laughs> Latin and <laughs> whatever else there was. <laughs> and it was a very, I mean, I went to an all-girls school where, where art was not something that was really paid much attention to. So how, like as you mentioned earlier, when we were talking earlier about that, 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 uh, that research that was done into the thing with the paperclip and the idea that this, the idea of creativity of curiosity sort of weeded out of young people what what do you think allowed you to sort of retain that that curiosity and that fascination with the creative despite the rigidity of of schooling why did they not beat it out of me it's a very good question <laughs> <laughs> i think my because my parents were open to me exploring as much as I wanted in terms of creativity. So when when I said I want to go to art school and I had no portfolio and I remember my father time looking at me like I'm you're you're doing what? There was something inside of me that always felt the need to be creative. And so I enrolled in the School of the Art Institute of Chicago as a student at large and had never drawn anything in my life before. I mean, they probably just thought, okay, we'll, we'll take her tuition money and, you know, after a year, goodbye. Somehow, and I cannot tell you why I decided to do this. I 
took these classes and I excelled. I had never drawn before, but I remember doing these charcoal drawings and there was something in me that was just never really, never really nurtured. And I did really well. And I, you know, I, I became, you know, I became a full-time student and I, when I would look at my classmates, they had sketchbooks from age four or five years old that they had filled with drawing sketches. Some of the most talented people I, I met and blew me away. I did not have that. But somehow I had this urge and it's a very good question like why how did they not beat it out of me? I think because my my parents really allowed me to to explore it without limitations. Yeah. You know, to kind of support it and say, you know what, it's okay. You, you, you know, they like probably rolled their eyes and said, all right, another year. Like, <laughs> here how, you much, go. how much am I paying for this? <laughs> exactly. But, you know, they let me be. And I guess I must have been very convincing in why I wanted to do this. But because they let me be and let me try this, I found something that I was really passionate about. But I didn't find my passion for photography until much later. So I think you can be creative, but you cannot, you don't always find what works for you and how to express yourself until you explore a lot of different venues. Yeah. When I woke up last year, to discover flooding in my studio, I was in a panic. It was so hard to process what was happening, much less figure out what exactly I needed to do next. The rain was just pounding down on me as I opened the door and stepped into a shallow pool of water. I got to work immediately, trying to minimize the potential damage, even though I wouldn't grasp, grasp it all until, until much later. Now, six months later, I can finally say that all the repairs have been completed, and the studio actually looks better than it did before the rains. Unfortunately, the cost was, wasn't was covered by insurance, but thankfully, my savings and your contributions over these many years made it possible to restore my converted garage, and most importantly, keep the show in production over these past seven months. It would have been a much more difficult thing to do, to get through, without your kindness and generosity. I have some exciting plans for the show, and your contributions are going to help to make all that happen. So thank you for your continued and loyal support of the show. And if you aren't a Patreon supporter already, please consider becoming one today. You can contribute $5, 10 $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash thecanderframe. By doing so, you help us to produce a show that is dedicated to great and insightful conversations about what it means to be a photographer and lead a creative life. Again, it's patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Thanks. I, th I think about this question a lot. I think especially as an educator and a, and a teacher it comes up a good amount, though I don't necessarily think I get into a dialogue about it with, with the students and the conversations that I've had on the show have always been kind of interesting because you hear, you hear some people who got that encouragement from when they were, were kids to play experiment, you know, discover things 
And then there are others who don't necessarily get that for whatever reason. And then as, a, as an adult, the challenge becomes the issue of learning how to give yourself permission to do so. And I think that's, it's, it's possible becomes all the more difficult because it seems that at least in the culture that I've grown up in, giving yourself permission to be creative in some way requires some sort of justification. Like the justification that, oh, I have talent or I can make money off of this or whatever it is, rather than doing it for just the sheer pleasure of doing it. Which is the reason why as kids, we just are naturally inclined to do it just because we like it. So we sort of enjoy it. And, you know, I know that you, that, that you teach and and we both have, the, have had the experience of creating epiphanies for the people we're working with, for them to discover that they're quite capable of being able to do this. But for you, what do you find helps to sort of bridge that bridge that gap between the sort of innate desire to be creative and the sort of gatekeeper that, you know, says you can or you can't or you can do it this way and you can't do it this way or you need this or and you, know, you don't need that. I think in 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 many cases well, I'm very involved in the women's street photography group in New York. And a lot of the members are my age. And I think it's when you're when your kids are in in college or you're no longer the mom or you you had your career and you're about to retire, you have this space and I think to nurture that space to say, "Oh, now I have the, you know, the ability and I don't need to to make money to support myself. I've done that." To now say take a class, explore something. If, if that's what you, you know, always wanted to do, just do it. Like go and try it out. And it might not be photography. It could be um, watercolor. I've taken lots of watercolor classes because it's, again, it's easy. It, it doesn't take, it doesn't always have to take a lot of preparation. I mean, I look at a lot of artists when I look at their studio spaces and I'm like, oh, I wish I'd have this space and I could do this. But you don't always need that. I think you can just follow you know what do you want to do and i would would say to people i i yeah do do it because you love doing it and that also goes back to i think we always have to remember that we go out because there's a joy in photographing and i actually have a joy in assembling these diptychs i get a lot of joy out of both of these activities and i think it's important because it's not about publishing the book it's wonderful to publish a book it's not about winning a competition it's wonderful to become you know and be acknowledged by your peers but you need to do it because you love doing it just like the kids did you know that that joy in in you know as you said when when you come home and you saw this 20 dollar bill in the that moment of joy i think it's hard to come by any other way this kind of very personal feeling of joy Hmm. the satisfaction for yourself it's not for anyone else and so if you know yeah as a parent i think it's yes we all want our kids to to find their passion or you know sometimes it's necessary for them to to financially support the parents or so there are decisions involved that are out of our control but i feel on the side i have a very smart friend who is um he, she's in the corporate world 
And she said to me, you know, I understand you have eight hours at your job, but there's still eight hours in your day that you can choose to either sleep or do what you would love to do. And it kind of stuck with me because so often we're like, you're exhausted. and But you can choose if you want to sleep six hours and then take two hours of do something you're passionate about, or you cannot. And I, I thought that was such a great advice. You know, we could just watch TikTok and, and scroll through Instagram and waste a lot of time. But you could also just go out and take this time and take a little watercolor, you know, pad, like postcard size and take a brush and have a little pad that you always have sitting there and just do that for an hour. It's your choice. And when she said that to me, I was like, you're right. Yeah. I think right now is probably one of the hardest times it is to be a photographer and, and not for, ob for obvious reasons. But I think it's, it's the accessibility of distractions, be it the phone or YouTube or whatever it is, robs us of that very time that we could dedicate to doing something ourselves, being creative, making a photograph, writing, writing a short story or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever it is. And it, like you said, there is, there is time, there is time, but it's like, well, how are you prioritizing what time that you, you have? Um, there have been times when the only time I had to shoot was 15 minutes that day. And it's like I'm going from the place where I park my car to where the office is. And one year I gave myself a 365 project. One, because I was at the time at a, at a job that required me to drive all the way across across town. And uh, I, was, I was just craving being creative. And I said, well, I'm going to take a picture every day. And sometimes the only window I had was that 15 minutes walking from where I parked the car to the front door of the office building. And I could just remember just being itching. What am I going to see? What am I see? And then making it and, and, and making it and making the photograph was so important for me at that point. And it didn't have to be a great photograph. I just had to make a discovery. And that I think nurtured itself. And that's something that I've always remembered, especially when people say, well, I don't have time to do it. It's like, right. Oh, we, we right. always have time to do it. Right, it's just the choice, a conscious choice to make. And I also think, have your camera with you mm. all the time. I know the, the, the iPhone, it's, it's quick, but there's something about taking the camera. It is a much more stopping what you usually do. It's a conscious decision of putting the rest of your life aside for that second and putting it to your eye or holding it and taking that frame that really stops you. It's, I mean, it's breathing, it's taking, it's meditational, it's taking the time for yourself and just doing it. And I think if you would do this every day, like you did that, mm -hmm. let's say, you know, I'll take a photo. You don't even need to leave the house. During yeah. COVID, during mm -hmm. COVID, we had to take one object in our house for, for a class and made, uh, make a series out of this. And it happened to be, I, I chose a shirt that was folded up, a white shirt that was folded up um, from, the, from, from the cleaner in the plastic. And I went through this whole series of photographs of taking it out and the little tag. And it's actually quite wonderful mini, mini, mini series of something that I would never shoot. But it forced me to shoot something in my home that was there. 
and to see it from a different, you know, see it differently and explore it. Explore a book, explore whatever it is in your house, a, a child's toy. Yeah, so the I don't have time is, 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 I understand because we're busy and there's a lot going on. But I think it's rewarding. For me, it's rewarding, personally rewarding to take yeah. that time. During COVID, I, uh, during COVID, I taught a, um, a series of classes where people basically had to create within their, their space, especially if they were just relegated at, at, at home. So they were sort of had to use their their lives that had become so much smaller as a result of COVID. And there were just a, some wonderful images that were made. And there was one image that stands out for me. And it was, I loved pictures of unmade beds. Yes. I said, people, don't make up the bed. If you're going to shoot it, just leave it the way it was in the morning. Cause I think the it's imprint much more, of it. The imprint, the of, imprint it. of life. But there's one, one, one a fellow took a photograph of his bed and you could see that his side of the bed was was unmade, um, and the other half wasn't. And for whatever reason, there was a reason why the the spouse had not been there, right? But I love that photograph because it implied it implied the absence of someone else in that that. And it was like it was a shot that most people would have thought, why Why do I want to make a picture of my unmade bed? It's uninteresting. It's boring. There's so many other things I could make photographs of. But I always think about that photograph and, and, and think, man, it can be anything. And it's so visual. And I mean, I just wanted to, while you're saying this, um, jump back to the fact that being categorized, I mean, we shouldn't categorize like as a in the box of street photography. So... I consider myself a photography that finds subjects on the street. And I feel that street photography for me is any kind of absence and imprint of life. Mm. So that there was some kind of imprint of a being. So if it's a footstep in the snow, that's a street photograph because yeah. there was, it was touched by something living. It could be a, you know, a tire track. There was something that, went by it could be a bird flying so the 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 idea of yes the street photo like somebody walking i always believe it's something that's kind of touched by life in in a in a physical way or in in a metaphorical way and i often like those those photographs that suggest the presence of someone someone has passed through here it could be a, a disc discarded candy wrapper or some sort of imprint right. or or you know the someone's written something on a fogged up window right, right. and it's like i love those photos oh those those are exciting to discover and they're so also satisfying when you see someone else who's seen them because i think that one of the inherent powers of those those photographs is is that they there's a sense of familiarity to them. And it's like, oh, I've not only seen it, but I've experienced that. And I think that that's one of the, one of the beauties of this kind of photography is that even if we are not in that same city at the same time or anything like that, 
that we can take a look at, at a photograph and it immediately makes that connection because we're all navigating these worlds together. We don't know each other, but we're all navigating these worlds together. And to have someone pull out something from that and say, look at this, and you go, oh, I know that. There's a, there's a certain, certain sort of comfort and resonance that I think makes these kinds of photographs that much more poignant. I also think it makes the world a smaller place because somebody in India or in Africa will be able to relate to the candy wrapper and have their own story and have their own childhood memories. And it really taps into your emotions much more than when you give a lot away. So the the yeah. kind of mystery in a photo, like the, the bed, the unmade bed, I mean, now we're going to go back to <laughs> that beautiful image that I have in my mind. You know, there's so many scenarios that you can envision or that come out of your own personal experience. And I think this is why, I, I think this is why you also fell in love with, you know, pairing photos. There, There is this opportunity to, you know, it's like, the the unmade bed is two photographs. It's a, a side of it's in in a way it's a diptych, because mm -hmm. you have the unmade bed and you have the made bed and you're contrasting them. So, you have a pair. Sometimes photographs are paired within themselves, and have a collection of that because that's also an interesting um, way of making photographs. But you're creating that in 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 pairing it, in 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 just a different way. Yeah. Um. People aren't, most people are not going to be able to see this, but behind you, you have uh, images from your project, Rolentando. Yeah. If I'm saying that correctly. Those, those are really an interesting series of, of work. Why don't you describe them and, and what brought these about? So, Rolentando started during COVID, where I felt I wanted to go out and take candid photographs. But because of the distance, I thought, you know, let me just go out with a longer lens. I usually shoot with the Fuji X100V, so it's a 35 millimeter with the crop factor. I'm very close to people, and I love the closeness, and I enjoy that kind of um, image making. So with the longer lens, it became this very different point of view. But what happened was that even so I had a long lens, and I should have been further away, I still creeped up on people. So <laughs> I just couldn't step away from them. So it became this mix of blur and and um, in-focus photos in one photo. And I was exploring the idea of what happens when I'm out with a large lens where people really see it. Mm -hmm. How much of um, attention will I get or will I get any attention will anybody care how close can I get to people without them caring and why is it that nobody has their heads up and is in their phones and in the earplugs and going home nobody recalls what they have seen because mm. we're not paying attention right. so this kind of blurry kaleidoscope that you end up with or that my series is kind of created was about what think about the people you've seen today and when you come home what do you recall of them it's not a clear photo it might be a color all of the photos are taken in front of a singular color background 
So I will look in the city for a blue background, a yellow background, a red background. I have this red wall where people just kind of walk through the backgrounds. None of them are um, photoshopped, so they're all in their tones as they are. And I really enjoyed this different approach to portraits on the street, candid portraits on the street. It also, I felt that all the people I photographed had this sense of beauty and gravitas. It didn't matter if it was young, old, what race it was. People looked beautiful to me, photographed in this fashion. And it kind of gave me this very positive feeling about humanity. I wasn't trying to display people in distress. I just observed them in their everyday being. And the idea that they were all beautiful made me feel really good about it. I saw the episode uh, of The Crit House where you came on with, yeah. with with this project. And it was interesting to see, the again, the sequencing that you created with multiple images in sort of panel discussion. And like the duologues, the, the, the relationships of the images to each other are really quite... It was really kind of interesting to see that discussion between sort of the individual photographs and how they are in terms of a sequence or a, uh, a series. And one of the interesting things that someone brought up was imagining this sort of as an exhibition where, you know, how do you sort of showcase this this work? Do you do like a single image that, and then sort of a, a roll of sequences or do you make one bigger and then one sort of smaller? And I, having having had that experience at the Crit House and also in sort of designing the book, um, what have been your thoughts since then in terms of, you know, how you might showcase the work? I know it's still kind of early, but I've just kind of wanted to see what your sort of your takeaway was from from that. I think there are a couple of ideas where how I would see like one would be this wall, like almost like a grid of, let's say, 30 people rows, maybe row five and maybe even more like this big piece of real estate that just has these four like they're behind me and you have them in a grid to kind of get this overview of wow there are so many different people and so many different colors then there's this idea of what I went to a Gary Vinograd exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum a couple of years, maybe two three years ago and they showed the photographs as um, a video display or it was just this display of individual photos but as a slideshow mm. against a wall and so I could see them just being kind of continuously shown as a slideshow as I am walking and this is who you encounter. But then there's also the sequenced pieces where there is um, the details to give you the idea of walking by it and that it's a quick kind of sequence. So I think it would be a, have to be a combination of all of them to really portray of what I want to say with these with these portraits, hmm. you know, that's it's not going to be easy. <laughs> which makes it which makes it a good thing because I, I I think that one of the good things that sort of have come out from this sort of digital age is that the way we show work uh, 
doesn't have to be a mounted picture behind a frame. That as artists, we have to think about what do we want the experience to be. Because if you if you if you if your thought in terms of the experience is just limited to having made the photograph and making a nice print and sort of mounting it, then you're just concerned. Okay, what wall does it get shown on? And and but when you think about all the potential that we have with all the technologies we have to be able to really evoke something else other than appreciation of oh that's a good that's a good print. So while you're saying this, of course, this pops in my head, and I'm thinking, what if the entryway or the first picture is a picture you walk through it's a it's like a slideshow or a display where you can walk through the photograph you know it's like um oh. i don't even know, like um i don't even know what it's called but if it's some kind of 3d display light display and you would walk through these people because part of it is that we mm. walk through people we do not connect with people And that's kind of a big part of this project. So, and I think unless you would actually walk through this photograph, you might never understand that that's part of the idea. Might be almost too, um, <laughs> might be too much. But there could be a part where you literally walk through these people. Yeah. I think it's one of the things that I like about the working on the street is that uh, there's an acknowledgement of people's presence around me, especially when I'm not thinking about them as just fodder for my photographs. It's just kind of my, oh, that's a really interesting character. He would make a, he or she would make a great photograph. But it's like, I love seeing something about someone and appreciating it. And whether or not I make the photograph, there's something very satisfying about that. And if I'm able to have a, dialogue with that person even if i don't make a photograph of them i i love that opportunity for sort of a fleeting connection um with someone um, but i know that when i do make a photograph that i feel i feel like i'm honoring that presence when i make the images regardless of whether or not they're ever aware of the fact that i made a photograph of them that's where i feel i'm coming from and And when I think about why I do this thing, it's also kind of like self-affirming because I'm kind of saying that about myself, which is when I think one of the sort of subconscious Freudian reasons I probably you know, pick up a camera in the way that I do. As you said before, there's a certain pleasure in being able to see and experience people in this way that I think is incredibly gratifying. And I can think of no other way you know, short of talking with everyone, but observing them and, and, and making the choice to make uh, the photograph, I think is sort of a, a, an underlying thing that I think links all of us who do this as, as passionately as we, as we do. And I think it's one of the reasons, at least for me, that I don't ever get tired of it. I think giving people dignity. Mm -hmm. I mean, people said like, I'm not trying to, I never tried to make fun of anybody like my photos of I mean I think or I hope they are respectful enough I mean yes sometimes you 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 know you you click something that is kind of taking out of a scenario and it might not be what they would have intended it but I know in Valentando I feel like there's a sense of dignity that all of these people have and 
I've never achieved that really before. And it's, you know, a painting gives people dignity because you, you give them the space, you sit them down, you spend time with them. And in these portraits, there, there is this glimpse of, of that kind of painterly being. And I, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to describe because I stumbled upon it. And it, it, again, this was this discovery that I never, it only happened because I did go out and tried something different. But giving people dignity today and, and respect and if you can express this in your photograph, I think it's really important in, in, in today's crazy time, yeah. to say the least. You know, to, to, to respect people, to, to have a conversation with people, to, to acknowledge people. And I love that. And I'm, I'm like you. I, I love these short interactions with people. I mean, they're not always the deepest conversations, but I, I love hearing their stories at that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore and can be anyone, someone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? I mean, Ray Metzger would always be somebody that anybody who's interested in street photography in the kind of um, compositions that I strive for the dark and light and the experimental nature that he had displayed and is still when I look at his work today I still feel it's very modern and of the time and I go back to his work often to his collages and how he managed to construct a photograph and there's times where he really constructs photographs and how he went from being more of a traditional street and it's not traditional but street photographer to then becoming a more abstract photographer and playing with space and I I truly admire him and still do and I still go back to his work and look his work up and if you're not familiar with it I really highly recommend it yeah great great suggestion great photographer Alina thank you so much I really enjoyed talking with you thank you so much it was such a pleasure and thank you for having me Thanks to Nina for joining us. Learn more about Nina and her work by visiting ninaklingphotography.com. If you're a fan of our work, you can write reviews on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on social networks, be it Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and now, it seems, threads. Remember to use the hashtag TheCandidFrame. You can also support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. Thanks to Bryce Powell, Brian Onofrichuk, Evan S. Williams, Matt Nickel, and Carrie Winfrey for their recent contributions. You guys are awesome. Thank you. We've relaunched our newsletter. If you want to receive updates on everything related to TCF, including book recommendations and announcements for special events, including workshops, both from us and some of our guests, please sign up by visiting our website. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And this is Ibarian X, 
And this is The Candid Frame.